Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. AI and machine learning are seen by many as capabilities with enormous potential for unlocking digital personalization and customer empathy at scale. Organizations that get this right are disrupting industries and leaving old-school competitors broke. Just think about what global businesses like Netflix, Amazon, and Facebook have been able to achieve with data-driven personalization. Yet, for many organizations, the promise of AI seems elusive or at least very hard to achieve. Many businesses are not realizing the full potential of their stores of data simply because they don't know how. To help us understand the potential of AI and machine learning for customer experience management, I recently spoke to my friend and co-author of Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, Dr. Kirk Bourne. Kirk is a truly unique individual who combines his incredible intelligence with a real passion for his chosen vocation. Having graduated with a PhD in astrophysics, he spent 20 years working at NASA before moving into the academic and corporate worlds. He spent 12 years as a professor of astrophysics and computational science, where he created the world's first data science undergraduate degree. He since moved into data science consulting, where he has been an executive for the past six years. Kirk has a social media following of well over 300,000 individuals, which is a testament to the huge amount of value he creates through content creation and knowledge sharing. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, we discuss the most valuable applications of AI and machine learning in customer experience management, what organizations must do to mature their data science capabilities, the most promising applications of AI in the near future, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Kirk. Kirk Bourne, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It's so good to have you on the show. Great to be here, Jonas. Yeah, it really is great to have you on here. I'm so interested in hearing from you because as we've just heard in the intro, you've had a very long and very impressive career across many industries and in the space of data science in particular. So uh, to open up, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career background and, and what you do? Yeah, so one of the spaces I've worked in is outer space. So my background is astrophysics. So I do have a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics. And I spent a good portion of my career working on data systems 
for space missions, but at the also doing data analysis, I should say, uh, for my research as an astrophysicist. So a uh, joke with people said I was doing data by day and data by night as an astronomer and as a support scientist for a NASA space mission. So I was always working with data. So for 20 years, I worked at, at the space agency, working with data with the Hubble Space Telescope and some other telescopes. And over the years of working with data all the time in terms of making it available to scientists, uh, increasing the accessibility and the way we describe data and the usability of data. I just, I, I sort of stumbled into machine learning about 23 or 24 years ago, which shows you how old I am. So, and uh, I discovered this sort of new way of looking at data that I never had seen before, because traditionally in, in the work I was doing as an astrophysicist, it was a data analysis. It wasn't really about predictive modeling and, and, and the, the way we talk about analytics today and, and machine learning in terms of algorithms that learn patterns and data to build you know, classification and predictive models. Even though we were doing all that stuff in the science, we just, it just was a totally new way of looking at math that I had never seen before. And I sort of fell in love with it. And that was over 20 plus years ago. And over those 20 plus years, I gradually migrated to doing more and more data science and machine learning and AI than astrophysics. So I guess you'd say I'm not doing so much astrophysics anymore, but I did leave NASA actually after 20 years and go to a university where I became professor of astrophysics for 12 years, but I didn't actually teach any astrophysics. For <laughs> I actually, we actually started the world's first undergraduate data science degree program. And I taught data science, both at the graduate and undergraduate level while at the university for 12 years. And then a large consulting firm got in touch with me about six years ago and invited me to join their staff as their first principal data scientist and an executive advisor. So I, I did that for six years. And about six plus months ago, I sort of semi-retired. So now I got two things going on. I'm a part-time uh, working at a data science AI startup called Data Prime. So Data Prime is a startup. So I'm just working part-time there as their chief science officer. And I now have my own private freelance business called Data Leadership Group. And people say, well, who's in the group with you? And I said, it's, not, it's a group of services, not a group of people. It's just, it's just me. And so teaching, training, public speaking, content creation, blog writing, you name it. If it has to do with data and AI and machine learning, I'll do it for you. Wow. And I do follow your content, so I know how much content you put out there. And uh, even though you say you're retired, you're not retired at all, it sounds. You sound like you're doing more than, than most people who mid-career. So what is it about data science that really fascinates you so much or, I suppose, makes you not want to retire ever? Well, it really goes way back to my early days. I mean, I met an uncle of mine gave me a Christmas gift when I was nine years old, which is a, a picture book of astronomy. So it was just a lot of pretty colorful pictures. And I was just fascinated by it. How, how does this universe work? You know, what, what is it that, you know, makes it tick? You know? and, and so at that early age, it was just the, the, the wonder of it all that attracted me. Then as years went by and I started learning more math and science and ultimately learned some uh, computer programming when I was in high school, this was like 50 years ago. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I, I discovered that you can model these crazy things in the space. You can build models and it's actually data that we collect that helps us understand those things. So I got all interested in data and modeling and science and physics and astronomy and math. And it just all just was everything I want ever wanted. And so that's why I, why I followed that career path. And so data science is really just like almost like a culmination of that because now I'm taking all those things that I love and learned 
and applying it across many other disciplines, not just astrophysics. So now I'm just like a kid in a candy store. I just want to taste everything, try everything, no matter what it is. It's whether it's in, in sciences or not in the sciences, you know, if it's in marketing, if it's in cybersecurity, if it's in finance, if it's in whatever, and it's got some analytic or data component, I'm interested. So what do you think you can take from astrophysics and apply to all these other industries? Well, I think it, to me, it's just, a, it, I tell people it's, it, it's a fluid transition that people, people think it's, it's a hard jerk to go from that to that. But again, I go back to saying it's, it's about using data. To, uh, you collect data to understand how a complex system works. From that data, you infer sort of what's going on and you build models, test those models, validate those models to predict how it's going to change, where it's going, what direction it's going. And if, if your model's wrong, you, you, know, you, 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 valid, you refine and validate the, the change in model. And it's always about collecting data and modeling. So again, these are my background in astrophysics required me to get an undergraduate degree in physics. And physics, if, I don't know if you've ever met people that got degrees in physics, what you learn in physics is how to solve problems. I mean, that's, that's what you do 24-7 as a physics major. You just solve problems. You learn how to just pose a problem, how to set up a problem you know, how to uh, figure out what the inputs and the outputs are, what, what are the fundamental forces and driving factors. So again, I, I, think, I, I think a lot about that every day. I've done some work uh, supporting companies in digital marketing and customer experience. And it's really the same thing. It's collecting data points, building a predictive model. Of how is this is customers going to interact or react to something? And it's no more different than my galaxies, I, which I, I studied galaxies and the, what the forces are gravity. They're, they're, they're a completely different kind of force, but the forces move Uh, entities around in space, just like digital marketing campaigns move customers toward uh, nudges toward purchasing products or whatever. So it's all about those forces and factors that you can model and you use data to both infer the model and to test the model and create value from data. It's it, To me, it's all just one big fluid, wonderful computational data science problem I'm solving. <laughs> Yeah, to put it another way, I think a lot of companies would love to find the stars in their uh, digital marketing galaxy these days. So, uh, <laughs> a great metaphor. <laughs> you feel free to, to polish it off a bit and steal it. I'm sure you could put it better than I. And um, Craig, I want to go into that a little bit more. What you talked about there, which is this digital marketing and customer experience space and how we apply data science in that. Because You and I, and for, for the audience, for complete transparency, you and I and five of our friends have co-authored a book called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, which is landing on bookshelves in November 2021. And one of the areas that you discuss in the book is exactly using AI for customer experience management. And when I talk to people about this area, I discover often that the AI scene as the foundation for this digital personalization and customer empathy at scale by people in the data science community, but for organizations and people who are not as entrenched in, in the evolution of AI, the whole thing can seem a bit elusive or at least hard to achieve simply because it hasn't been done before, so they don't know how to do it. So could you tell us a bit about uh, what can data science, AI, machine learning actually bring to digital and analog customer experiences, and how can we make that happen? Well, what's exciting about that question is that it's, it could take probably two hours to answer it because there's so many possibilities of things one can do. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start, but let's just start with sort of content generation. I mean, you can create content that's hyper-personalized. 
I mean, li- literally, you can you can create videos, you know, marketing campaigns to a, to a single individual, direct marketing to a single individual, what we call hyper personalization. So understanding what a customer likes, what they and that like has to help maybe what their browse what their browsing history is, maybe on an e-commerce store, or even not an e-commerce store, just in general. So what interests this person, you know, and maybe what kind of intentions they have. So if, if they're browsing at specific products, then maybe they have an intention to buy that product. So knowing what intentions are and what interests people have, you, you can steer them and uh, towards the, the right kind of content that you know that would please them and be interesting and exciting to them. And so, so recommender engines have been around for a long time, but there's recommender engines sometimes have been just sort of generic, like you know people who looked at this product also like that product, but they can get very very specific now in this hyper personalization phase, where it's very specific about the kinds of things I like. Okay, it's like people might like sports, but they may also like you know, uh, gourmet foods, but, but maybe there's a combination of, of foods they have to have to do with t- what we call in the U.S. tailgating, right? <laughs> that is when you go to the sporting event, you, 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 you sit outside in the parking lot, open up the back at the end of your car and you, and you have all kinds of fancy foods for people to come and eat before you go into the game. And so it's like, so, so maybe there's some combination that, that that's sort of missing in the, in the traditional recommender engine, you know, people who like this also like that. It's, it's something special about you. But what's also the, in, embedded there is because it's all about the data, the, the data points also not only about the things you might like, but also when you might like it and where you might like it. For example, if you're on vacation or at work or at home, of course, we're all at home now, I guess, but that sort of changes everything. We're working from home for the last year and a half, but, but whether you're at home or at work or on vacation or traveling in an airport, that location has a lot to do with your preferences, but also time of day. Okay. So weekend, evening, regular weekday, those hours of the day also determine what you may be or may not be interested in. So context is a dimension that is nothing more than just other data about your data. All right. So I always tell people, you know, there's a slogan in real estate, you know, the three most important things in real estate is location, location, location. <laughs> so, the, so the three most important things in data, I always tell my students, are metadata, metadata, metadata. That is, it's not just descriptive metadata, like you know, this is a table with rows and columns, or this is an image, you know, 600 by 400 pixels. It's, it's also the content, what's in the data, okay? So metadata describes a higher level sort of context of what it is that you're looking at, what, what it is the data is about. And so adding context to your recommender or your digital marketing campaign or the content you showed to a particular user, that, that's another set of data that adds higher sort of targeting potential you know, for getting a, a customer interested. Customer experience is not really just about getting people to spend money. It's about getting people to become loyal to your product, becoming an advocate for your product. Okay, that whole marketing funnel doesn't just stop at the point where you buy something. It continues. Do you become a loyal customer? Okay, so then you have a lifetime value to that business. But beyond that, do you become an advocate for the business? Because then then you can actually start promoting it yourself on your social media (laughs) platforms to your friends and family. And so now you have a promoter score because you're actually promoting the product. You're actually being the voice of, of that business in the marketplace. And so the more you can be that person. So, so I do a lot of mention of different things in my, on my social Twitter feeds and LinkedIn feeds sometimes, you know, books and things that I think are really interesting. doesn't mean I've bought those things. 
but other people do as a result of what I do. So, so there's a, there's a marketing attribution angle here of following the dots to see who talked about this on their social channel, which led other people who follow that person to buy the product. And so marketing attribution is another way of measuring the influence of a person. So all of these things that I've just described have to do with collecting data and understanding the influence that data has on making a, a recommendation, a decision, an action. And so for me, again, it goes all the way back to the things I was saying earlier about collect data, trace the you know, trace how that data indicates how this person, this customer is, is moving through space and time, and then interact with that customer at, at the right point, at the right time, in the right context. Yeah, that's a really interesting comment because I was sitting here thinking that a lot of organizations would focus heavily on the uh, may I call it the prime data, but the me metadata would uh, often not even be collected. Precisely. And certainly not uh, used to its full extent. You, you're saying that potentially it's at least as value as the core, say, demographic data of about a customer or uh, whether they clicked on a button or not, those sorts of things. Exactly. So I think that hyper-personalization hyper I, I, I had a near experience, let's say near experience of hyper-personalization. It, it didn't happen, but I was expecting it to happen. So I went to this conference in Las Vegas. Okay, Las Vegas, big showy place, lots of big convention centers, lots of big conventions. I mean, big electronics shows and all kinds of stuff there, right? And so as you come through the airport, I mean, it's just glitzy. There's all kinds of stuff in the airport. And they have like these talking robots inviting you to go to different places, right? And, you know, and I really expected that this talking robot was actually going to recognize me by face, recognize that I was going to be like attending a particular event and actually say something very personalized to me. Like, hey, I hear you're going to this show. Uh, you can get this free pass for a meal at the at the at that convention site uh, or sorry. I mean, I, I just just something I'm, I'm making that part up. But I just I just thought that there was going to be more sort of a personal interaction there. And I've actually heard stories like this where vehicles driving down the road and then there's like the signs along the side of the road that actually, the signs are actually electronic now, right? So they can, they can scan through different particular ads on, on the sign as you're driving down the road. But, but the, if the 5G connection there recognizes your phone is in proximity, then it knows it's you that's coming down the road and it can actually flash something that's personalized, targeted to your particular interests like a note, maybe like, for example, I like to eat pizza, right? So all of a sudden I see this ad for a, hey, next exit, Kirk, there's a great pizza shop. Like and I'm looking at this slide, this Kirk, what? It hasn't happened, but it could happen, right? Because again, it's, it's a location aware analytic. It's, it understands where you are at that moment and able to, to target something specific to you because of that context, as you said, that extra data besides the primary data that can inform the model that to, to, to take a particular recommendation. Yeah, very fascinating. I don't know where we're going to be with this in 10 years. Uh, perhaps you can give us a, <laughs> a prediction a little later, but <laughs> there's a lot of opportunity. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned uh, one point which is interesting there, which is the, the context uh, has changed a lot in the last, say, year and a half. We're now in, at the moment, we're in October 2021. So uh, we've been in this global pandemic uh, and I actually hosted a conference last week in Europe where someone presented a model and they couldn't understand why the latter half of their model was uh, way off compared to the, what it had done in the previous two and a half months. 
And lo and behold, the latter half day, the last four weeks was exactly when the pandemic started. Uh, my guess was uh, that's because yeah. people actually didn't do what they did uh, right in those four weeks uh, that they'd done in the pre- preceding 12 weeks. And um, how do we deal with something like that in the world of data science when we're trying to predict people's behavior and there's such a big shift in the underlying data. And perhaps this is even easier to do when there's such a big shift uh, as opposed to smaller, more um, hard to hard to identify shifts. Yeah, this has been a really big challenge in the data science community. It's called the basically concept drift or data drift or model drift, right? So what I like to say to people, I mean, so, so what you're talking about is model drift, right? Your model no longer predicts the right thing and no longer re- represents the right behaviors, right? Whether it's people or supply chain. Oh my gosh, that's not good. That's not get into supply chain. <laughs> All right. So how products move, how, how products are priced, you know, how products are located, how people buy, what people buy, all this stuff is changing during COVID. So all these models just started breaking entirely all over the place. And so model drift is basically when the model is no longer matches the real world scenario. So there's, so I always say the model is nothing more than like a mathematical function, right? So, so Y equals F of X. Okay. So there's a simple mathematical statement. So X is the input. So that's your data. All right. The output is Y that's okay. And there's a function in between that's the F of X, right? So, so when you build a data science or machine learning model, you're, you're trying to figure out what that function is that takes an input to produce the right output. And so there, you can have data drift that you can have the, the input data, the X is changing. So the input data, like the patterns of what people are buying and when they're buying or when things are being placed in the stores or when they're not being delivered because of supply chain problems, the X is changing, but also the concept, the, the Y is changing because people wanted to buy different things. Suddenly there was a very sudden increase in the, in the purchase of certain products. You would go to the store, you know, all kinds of like paper products just were no longer available, right? All kinds of things that just changed in terms of what people wanted, right? So, so the behavior, the behavior has changed, but also the output has changed. So that's, so when you get the data change, that's called data drift. When you get the output, the, the target variable you're trying to pre- target variable you're trying to predict, that's concept drift. The combination of those things is model drift. So data science has teams have really focused really hard in the last year and a half on what we call model ops or ML ops. That, that is basically monitoring models to, to detect concept and data drift model driven and that has to do when us when suddenly the accuracy of the model just falls apart and that whether it's the data or the or the thing you're predicting from the data is no longer right then yeah so, so you may have very pre- good input data that, that is for example what products are people buying well I, I still think online and even brick and mortar stores still have good data what people are buying so th- there's not a lot of like changes in x so to speak but the, but the models were completely wrong in terms of what they were predicting because people weren't buying those things like they were before. And so I think the, uh, the, the, this, the, this sudden importance of ML ops and model ops has become really, really critical. And it, there's a lot of discussion. Are those two things different? And the best way I heard people describe it is ML ops is really model, monitoring the machine learning itself. So it's a data science tool to say monitoring the, you know, the validation and precision of the model and model ops is, is the actual business application is that is am i compliant the rules and regulations am i running into risk here is am i am i running into some kind of financial dilemma here because i'm not like delivering the right thing to my customers so so it's it's more of a business focus on the business model that you're using to make business decisions whereas mlops is focusing on more the 
sort of the math and machine learning, you know, are we really building, using the right training data, the right output data to, to be able to uh, produce the right models for, our, you know, for the business. And so these things have really become extremely critical in the last year and a half. I think we'll come back to model ops and ML ops later in the interview because it's a it's an area that I personally think is undervalued or doesn't get the focus and um, resource that it needs often in organizations, uh, depending on where they are and their maturity curve uh, within data science. Now, before we get to that part of it, Kirk, I'm I'm interested in a particular area here. If we jump out of the the pandemic uh, again and and look more broadly at how we can use data science to make customers do certain things, i.e. improve the customer experience and for them to interact with us in, in ways that we would like. Typically, when you go to a store or you call in to the call center or you have an interaction through email or chat, the salespeople that you meet through that interaction will often play to your emotions in one way, shape or form. Do you think AI can do that? And if so, how can it do that? Well, I think definitely, yes. Been a lot of development in sort of emotion detection. We've had for a while sentiment analysis. For example, in social media, sentiment analysis has been around for a while, whether you actually can determine whether what someone's sentiment is about something, right? So if you're, if you're making some comment about some product or about some political thing or economic thing or some movie or a sports team, you can tell whether the person has a positive or negative sentiment about it. But you also can detect emotion, all right? So I might thoroughly detest a particular sporting team. <laughs> okay, so I have a very negative sentiment, but you know, I'm not angry about it. I'm not sad about it. I don't have any emotion about it. I just don't like that team, right? <laughs> okay, so, so the, the, those are two different things, having a particular type of opinion about something versus you know, a, a feeling like anger or hate or love or whatever. All right, so there's, there's an emotion wheel with like 36 emotions. Uh, I don't have time. I don't think I can name them all. But anyway, so emotion detection is becoming a real thing in AI. And so when you get those conversational chatbots that a lot, lot of us get now when we call up on the, and, and call the contact center, we, maybe that's our first interaction is, is with a conversational AI, which is, which is okay because maybe they can solve our problem before we have to wait for two hours for a human to get on the phone with. Okay. So if it can answer our question quickly, that's great. But uh, so, if, so if you're calling and you're angry about something about a, they can detect that and, and, and can work with you to, to deal with that particular, you know, emotion you have. Right. So, so I think the AI not only is going to detect, but also because it's going to be we're, what we're aiming for with AI, right, is, is actual intelligence, right? <laughs> not, not just a sensor that says that collects data, right? Okay, so we've had sensors collect data, but the sensor now is smart to recognize, well, this data is telling me you're angry or you're happy or you're sad or something. And then so then it actually can, can modify its response to you based upon that detection. And so it's it's a modified response, which makes it an actual intelligence as opposed to just a data collector. And so I think we're going to see more of that sort of sentiment being brought in and emotion being brought in to that interaction, that AI interaction, as you were describing. Yeah. And I also think what you were saying is it's actually a, another example of metadata. So the, the real data is the customer calls up and says, I want to cancel my subscription. But you don't you don't necessarily see the emotion in that interaction when it's when you're just measuring the, the pure event, the metadata on why and, and the context around it is important there. 
Where, where have you seen, if anywhere, where have you seen this applied well? Well, actually, I was attending a conference recently on the customer call center, contact center, and the, and the, and how AI and basically cloud that is, you know, general sort of universal access, you know, to the models and the data, which is what the cloud provides. So it's a decentralized access to the tools, the techniques, the algorithms, the data. And I was really super impressed with how contact centers are using AI all over the place in, in terms of like the sentiment thing you just mentioned, all kinds of stuff like automatic form filling out. Okay. So you call up and you say, well, my account number is this and my balance is that, and my name is this and my address. It's just automatic. It can fill that stuff out. Uh, but, but so, so there's, there's that kind of aspect. There's the ability again, to sort of capture the conversation so that if you, if you have to get switched to a, a human agent or that human agent switches you to another human agent, all that context is carried between those people. You don't have to repeat it. How frustrating has that been for us, right? We call a place and they keep asking us the same question, right? I mean, you dial, you call the number and it says, you know, punch on your phone, your account number or something like that. Punch on the phone, your return call number. Well, you shouldn't, you already know my return, return call number because I'm, I'm using my phone. And so you do all that stuff and then you get to finally get the human agent and they ask you all the same questions again, like what? You know, Okay, so there's all kinds of automatic sort of capture of information like that, but there's also recommendations to the call center agent. Maybe offer this to the customer or this kind of help or, the, or this uh, particular solution to the problem. And so, the, the, so it, 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 I always tell people that, that the, the real best customer experience comes when there's really good employee experience, right? Because when the employee is sort of excited to help you, then you can feel that, right? And and the employee can be excited. The contact call center employee can be happy when they're delivering something that they feel like they're utilizing their best abilities, their best skills, and their knowledge. If they're just answering your question, like what's the balance of my account and where do I mail my check? You can get that off the website, right? A bot can answer that question. So now the bot is answering that question. So now it makes the service representative's job so much enjoyable because they're, they're there to help with those hard problems, those complicated problems. And they feel really satisfied when they can help a customer solve these difficult problems. And so you get this satisfaction on both sides. And that's, that's a, and AI is, is basically helping that. And I say AI, and I, I'll, I'll throw this in here now. I, I say there's nothing artificial about artificial intelligence. I always say AI is assisted intelligence, amplified intelligence, augmented, accelerated. So it's assisting the agent it's augmenting you know, the call center because now they can do 10 times more call center work without hiring 10 times more call center representatives. It's amplifying that, that, that is, it, it, it sort of boosts the productivity of the individual, right? It's also accelerating. It gets you the, to the answer faster. I mean, it's, it's all these other aspects of, of intelligence, not just artificial. And then I, so that's where I see it. It's really just making everybody's life more productive you know, better. And, and, and again, that sort of augmented experience where you got, you get more than you bargained for it in a positive way. One of the previous guests on the show who we, we both know, well, Prashant Natarajan put it something like this. He said, AI is really about taking the robot out of human so that the human can become more human in the interaction, which I, I personally like that phrase. So Craig, I think we should try and step inside the organization now then, because we're sort of going down that path already. And you talk about the frontline staff being more engaged with customers and the AI helping to augment that experience, both for the employee and for the customer. And I typically say to people that data science is a team sport because we, we need everyone involved to come up with the right solution. It's not just 
some technical technical whiz kits that sit in the back office and code up algorithms that are going to magically solve all our problems. So this this collaboration across the organization is quite important. How does an organization take on that challenge to involve the frontline and the technical experts to do the build the AI and the actual the operations of it all coming together. So this is your MLOps and, and model ops stuff coming into it as well. How does an organization organize that and orchestrate that so that we uh, get AI success? Well, I'm a big fan of a couple of things. One is start small, but think big. All right. So don't try to do too big of a thing up front. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And the, the other thing I'm a big fan of is the KISS principle. You may be familiar with that one. Keep it simple and smart. Uh, the S has changed since I heard it last. <laughs> the last S. Yeah, there's another S there. That's what times people use. But but I'm a big fan of, of, of keeping things as simple as possible, but no simpler, which is actually a quote from Albert Einstein. <laughs> Keep your models as simple as possible, but no simpler. So that's the trick to figure out where that sweet spot is. But the, but the point is, is that there's a lot of value to be got from simple models, very simple, straightforward models. And it's if it's driven by a, bi- a good business question and you get a good business insight from the data, then it doesn't need to be AI. It doesn't need to be deep learning, machine learning, computer vision, and all these fancy. So you don't necessarily need all those extra powerful, super mathematical tools. At some point, you, you may. You may want to do that. And big companies are doing that. But, that. but you can still be successful without all that big stuff. So one of the ways I've seen p- companies do this is, and, and one, one company in particular, that the CEO basically said, we have no more front office or back office. And that was a funny way to say it, but basically he meant anybody in the company who sees something in the data should say something. And there was a tremendous amount of value that he created from that in his company because he basically had people who, if they saw some pattern in customer data, even though they may not be a salesperson or a marketing person or a contact center person, if they see something that might be in, insightful about some customer behavior, some customer interest, or maybe some interest in uh, changes in the market or uh, whatever, they should say something. And it actually created value all up and down the organization because people now felt empowered that, hey, I, I as a human being, can recognize patterns. <laughs> Every child can recognize patterns. They can recognize the colors and shapes of their toys and their parents' voice. They can recognize when they're hungry and, <laughs> and when they're tired, <laughs> though they don't admit it. <laughs> so, so human beings are extremely good. And the fact that we became successful on this planet because we were really good at pattern detection and pattern recognition. I always tell people that when the first cave person came out of the cave and there was an animal in front of them, they had to decide, is that going to be my lunch or am I going to be its lunch? And so, okay. So if you made that, if you made the wrong decision there, your day is over, your life's over, right? So we had to, we became really, really good at pattern recognition, pattern detection. So humans are good at this. So, so allow people to do that. Allow people to look at data. And again, not look at data that they don't have access to. I'm not saying, you know, you'll break some kind of government regulation. You shouldn't be looking at this data. No, I mean, if you, if you see something that you legitimately have access to and you're, you see a pattern there, a trend there, or some kind of insight there that could help your business, then uh, say so. So, so that, that, that's where data democratization is, is more of, a, again, it's a cultural thing. And that's this, this company I was talking about, the CEO stated it. And so it basically it said, the guy, the guy on top said this, so we're going to do this. I think big start small mindset is also powerful. Because you can start with some very, very simple uh, customer model, behavior model, and w- get some quick wins, some quick successes, 
And when you do those quick wins and quick successes, people start seeing the value of this thing, right? So I call those proofs of value. And those proof of value very quickly build advocacy across the organization for people to want to try bigger things. Because there's a lot of resistance. I mean, there's a lot of resistance in companies in different ways. And, you know, I say it comes from all levels. You know, the, the top level people maybe feel like the, you know, the algorithm is going to take over the decision powers of the company. The lower level people think of the, the, you know, the bots and, and the AIs are going to take over my job. And the middle level people say, well, what's, what's my role here? Because, you know, there's the, the people doing all the good stuff and the bosses at the top making decisions. Why am I here? You know? And so, so, so when people see that it's not about changing their job or taking their jobs, it's about making their jobs better, more productive, more interesting. And so when you, when you get those quick wins, you see, well, we suddenly got this sudden increase in revenue by this little change on our website or this little change in our marketing campaign or this little change in our branding. And hey, everyone still has their job here. We just implemented some AI and everyone's still here. So hey, maybe that means AI is not going to take my job away. So start with those small victories, build up the, the, the culture, build up the advocacy, build up the, the trust people have. This, you know, this, this is a good thing for us. Uh, and, and, and show the value it brings to the company. Because if you're bringing value, increasing the revenue and the bottom line of the company, that's good, hopefully, for everybody. I mean, it's job security for everybody. So I think that... Those two principles, I think, are, are how I like to just start off with people is to think about how to keep it simple, but also think big. You know, think, you know, think about your strategic goals. Don't, don't forget about your mission. You know, be mission oriented. Where are we go? What are we trying to achieve? Where are we trying to go with our business? But take those small steps to get there. Don't don't try to b- build the, the the big huge machine learning AI factory <laughs> first. It's like building the battleship. I mean, don't just build the battleship and then just launch it 20 years later and say, oh, I guess we should have tried the different components first because the thing just sank. <laughs> okay, so, so work on the small thing, get all those small successes working, and then you can go after the really bigger things. Yeah, that's a good way to frame it. And as someone who's building up a data science team from scratch at the moment, I could take a lot of uh, value out of what you just said there in how I, how I do that over time. So thank you for that. And I might ask my CEO to make that same statement inside our company. That would be entirely helpful. <laughs> well, there's this, you ever ride the New York City subway? I and mean, it's probably true on other tubes or whatever you call it around the world, but there's a, a signs everywhere that say, if you see something, say something. Okay, so it's a safety thing. But, but I say the same thing about data. If you see something in the data, say something. Okay, that, that's the simplest way of describing data democratization. All right, because there's, Again, going back to this other company, I don't want to go into the long story because it's a long story, but the, the short answer was, is that they, they, they created a customer experience for the cost of maybe two or three dollars. Okay. It was a European company. So it's two or three euros. They, they basically did this thing for a customer in a public setting that was so beautiful and touching for people that they, all these people t- tweeted it. They shot videos and posted it on all the social networks. And, the, and this company got an enormous increase in social branding and customer loyalty, all this stuff, just for doing this one little thing for this little customer, a 10-year-old child, that just because someone recognized that it was their birthday, they saw on the data, it was the child's birthday that day, right? The, the person who was handling the transaction, they just they had some information there. And normally they would just say, well, that's not my business. I'm just selling the product here. But they did, they did something that uh, they gave a little gift to the girl. And it was just like 
I don't know. It, it, it was just like it, it, it just seems like trivial, right? Uh, but but it was a big moment, and it was because someone recognized this thing in the data. Like today's date equals this person's birth date. That's an algorithm. Believe it or not, that's an algorithm. If A equals B, then take an action. So if birthday equals today's date <laughs> with a customer standing in front of you, then do something about it. Take an action. You know. Wish them happy birthday. And in this case, they, they actually had a little cake for the girl saying happy birthday and everybody shared it on online. And it was just a, an enormous increase in sort of the, the, the social, uh, I mean, there was no, there, there was no marketing campaign that could have reached, had the reach that that had for, 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 for no expense to the company basically. And so again, that's a simple little thing where the person felt I, I, I can say something, I can do something here because my CEO says, if I see a pattern in the data, I should do something. And, and they did. And a takeaway from that story, I think is that although the company can't plan for that uh, viral response on the internet, that is to some extent uh, a fluke, you can plan for putting real empathy and emotion into the interactions you have with your customers, because there are companies that do recognize that it's your birthday, but they send you a very generic uh, email and say, happy birthday, here's the five products you should uh, look at on our website or something <laughs> like that. And it doesn't quite have the same <laughs> emotional appeal. And that's probably not where you should go with this sort of thing. So one is pattern detection, but also the right response is, right. Uh, is just exactly. so critical Precisely. to do that. And that's where the human component of this is ever so critical, right? Human in the loop AI because it's recognizing that even though there might be a recommended action, you know, as a human, that what's a better action, right? Just because it's your birthday and I'm, gonna, and I'm now going to send you my catalog of, a, of the 100,000 products I think you might want to buy. No, that's not a very good reaction. <laughs> that's not a very good response to the fact that it's my birthday. Yeah, and we, we see AI in, in our lives and kind of know it's there, but we don't understand always that often there is a human interaction behind it or a screening at least on, on things that are seemingly bigger decisions uh, where there's more risk involved. So a very benign example that comes to my head is when we post something on Facebook, a picture, it will get scanned by an AI and it will get flagged if the content of that picture potentially is inappropriate for the platform. But a human will look at that before it gets either released or discarded into the ether. It's not the AI making the sole decision. There's there's uh, some human there, and uh, there are thousands of people employed at Facebook to look just look at images and marketing campaigns and other things just for screening purposes. So uh, the AI helps simplify the decision or speed it up, but the human is still making the ultimate decision in many of these cases because it's just too risky not to have. Yeah, that's have, where have that's that. where you get to that amplified and augmented intelligence, right? So it's helping those human agents who are making that the final decision basically feeding them just the things that they really should look at as opposed to just every single image posted on the, on the, on the site, which would be impossible for anyone to manage. Yeah, it's a, another example of that is the, in the banking world, we have fraudulent transaction detection, but if your model detects all transactions that are fraudulent, but it also in that process detects an extra 5,000 transactions that are not fraudulent, but a human has to review all of those, then it's just complete overwhelm for those people who have to do that. And it's actually potentially uh, breaks down your system as a whole. So you, you really need to calibrate your, 
your AI to, to take into account uh, the human at the other end that has to interact with it as well in that sense. Yeah, that we call that alert fatigue, right? <laughs> when you get yeah. when you get too many alerts, and so yeah, so, so so trying to minimize the false positives and the false negatives is has been a a task for data scientists forever, right? I mean, anyone who's ever built models, you're always trying to minimize the false positives and false negatives. If it is, is it is it this and you say it isn't, or it's not that and you say it is, you know. So whether it's a medical diagnosis or anything, you want to get you want to minimize those errors. But, but the real interesting fact is, is what makes it interesting. I should say is that, is that sometimes there's a different cost associated with one error versus the other. Right. So if, if, if I, if I misdiagnose, if I'm a doctor, let's say I'm a medical doctor and I, I misdiagnose a disease in a patient, it's very different consequence. If, if I say you have cancer and you don't versus I say you don't <laughs> and you really do, and you go home and two months later you die. I mean, it's like, hello, <laughs> I mean, one of those is a far worse mistake to make than the other one. I mean, if I tell you you have cancer and you don't, I mean, you have a, you have a few days of being very distraught and then you get the doctor's call saying, oh, sorry, it was a mistake. Whew. Wow. Now you're celebrating, right? But, but in, in the other case, it's like terrible, right? So there's a lot of AI that can help us sort of sift through, I call it basically data triage, by, by finding the things that really need the attention versus the things that don't really need the attention. Yeah, it's, ability, it's an ability to say, look over here, there's potentially some important stuff over here. So you sort of focus instead of not seeing the wood for the trees, basically. So Kirk, we, we talk about uh, democratizing data science in organizations. That's a, a common phrase these days. And that's such that everyone is able to consume and utilize data-driven insights and AI outputs effectively within the organization. And that obviously helps uh, the bottom line, ultimately, and also customers. Um, but what's actually required to make this happen to make a whole organization data-driven? I think this comes back to the sort of this, um, you know, these the small victories. I mean, so again, helping, having people participate and doing some straightforward things. I mean, especially, I mean, if, if it's a big organization who's already doing a lot of stuff, this is, it's a different story. But, but if it's a small organization trying to figure out how to get started, just start with some simple things like we were talking about earlier. And, uh, and those simple victories can help get people to trust it and to realize, hey, I got, again, it's a question of sort of telling people what they already can do, right? So basically pattern recognition, pattern detection. So my background as an astronomy, we, in astronomy, we, we, as the years went by, just to give you an example, we, we, we had these projects where we were collecting like you know hundreds of, Images of hundreds of millions of galaxies, right? And there's, there's not enough, as we used to say, there's not enough graduate students in the world to classify all those galaxies. <laughs> so, so we actually created a project called Galaxy Zoo, which we invited people from around the world, and eventually over a million people signed up. And they were not scientists; they were just anybody from eight, from you know people from three years old to 103 years old. And we basically posed good questions. That, that is to say, we're not asking you to a complicated question like, is this a starburst galaxy with a quasar on the middle? Because you wouldn't even know what that question meant. But if I say, is it blue? Is it red? Is it round? Is it flat? Is it smooth or is it rough in appearance? Is there a galaxy next to it or not? How many if there is one? So, so any person can answer that question, right? Those questions. And so once you ask the questions that actually lead back to the scientific models the scientists are building, even though they're straightforward questions that any human being can answer, then people just really got into it. I said, so, so 
So we put a million galaxies out there on Galaxy Zoo, and we got over 100 million classifications. It was just phenomenal. And so Galaxy Zoo expanded into this thing called the Zooniverse, where now, and now it's all about you know, everything, pa- paleontology and botany and zoology and even ar- archaeology, identifying patterns and, and ancient writings. I mean, it's all available because what can because we're tapping into what people are really good at recognizing patterns and data. So if you can if you can help your people realize that you, what you're asking them to do is something they're already good at and it's going to bring value to our business, then I think that's sort of like it's it's an easy step for people. And I think that's again. I, I mean, some people want to start off with machine learning and have the big conversation about deep learning and neural networks and all the the latest mathematical advances and. And I love all that stuff. I'm a mathematician at heart, right? I mean, there's physics and astronomy is all about the math. But that's not, as much as I love it, I know that doesn't sell to people, to the average person, right? What sells the average person is what's my role here? How can I contribute? And how can I see the value that, I, that I'm that i pr- providing? And uh, finding these simple algorithms that uh, involve, like, does the birthday equal today's date? That's a, If A equals B, <laughs> that is an algorithm. There's another company that, that basically had created a 100,000% ROI on an analytics investment when they realized that the, that the simplest little signal that a customer was going to churn, that is, they were going to take their business to another organization, was that they were, they were coming to the website more frequently than normal. So obviously, they were probably doing comparison shopping between our company's product and some other company's product. There were way more visits than normal. So they said, oh, if web clicks on our site passes a certain threshold, that's an algorithm, okay? If clicks is greater than X, so if Y is greater than X, do something. And so they had this very simple little outreach to these customers. Say, hey, did you see we have this and that? So it was very straightforward, simple, uh, not a very harsh, but a very you know, a comfortable sort of outreach. They managed to, re- they did a lot of A-B testing on this and they, and they determined that they had saved from a particular investment. I'll just, I'll just say it's, well, it was $1 million. They saved the business $1 billion in customer value in a three-month business quarter. So they got a 100,000% ROI, return on investment, from that simple algorithm, if Y is greater than X. <laughs> so say it mathematically or don't say it mathematically, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that it took a person with just very simple business intuition, like, gee, these people seem to have a lot more action on the website the month before they leave us. Maybe that's the signal. And maybe why they're doing that is their comparison shopping. All right, well, okay, we think that's the causal reason, but it doesn't even matter if it's the causal reason. They did the experiment, they did the A-B test, and it proved extremely successful. <laughs> so, yeah. so these kinds of things, they, a lot of times are just drawn out of just your normal way of thinking about how people behave. So one of my most exciting things that I care about is uh, behavior analytics. And, and so behavior analytics applies not only just to marketing and customers, but it applies to cybersecurity. How, you know, how are people acting on our network? It applies to patients, how, you know, how people respond to treatments or respond to information, for example, about the pandemic. How are they reacting? So looking at behavior and data, behavior analytics helps us to design solutions because the behavior analytics is both predictive and prescriptive. Where is the where is this thing going? Whether it's a person or a process or a product, where is it going? And if it's going to a destination we don't want it to go to, what can we do to change the destination? So I use an astronomy metaphor for that. I call that the killer asteroid metaphor. Okay, so the killer asteroid is the asteroid heading towards Earth. It hits Earth and wipes out civilization. 
Okay, so we're, we're tracking these asteroids in space. We're collecting data. We're following the, the path. We know the, we know the path now. We know the laws of physics so we can predict where it's going. That's a behavioral model. We know where it's going because we know the fundamental laws that govern its behavior. So if I tell you that asteroids going to hit Earth next Tuesday at 12 o'clock and wipe out civilization, have a nice day, goodbye, nice talking with you, you're going to say, wait, stop, stop, stop. Can't you do something about it? <laughs> That's the same conversation we have when you say this customer is going to churn. And you're going to say, well, can't you do something about it? Or... When you go to the doctor and they say, well, you're going to die from this disease and say, well, can't you do something about it? Or we have, we have a likelihood of a high likelihood of a ransomware or a cyber breach on our data, our website. Well, can't you do something about it? So it's the same response, right? And so we collect data to build predictive models. And if we don't like the predicted outcome, do we want to do something to prescribe a better outcome? That's prescriptive analytics. So all that has to do with behavior of the thing that is, how is it moving through space and time? What are the laws and, that govern it and nudge it this way or that way? And that, that comes, and how do you learn those laws, those nudges? What's the right nudge? What's the right thing to push to make it move to a better destination? And that's what analytics is all about. The data collection, that third-party data, the context data, all those additional data source. They give you those causal inferences of, if I do this, maybe this will happen. And the more you learn from that, the better outcomes you have for your business, no matter what your business is, healthcare, medical, marketing, cyber, doesn't matter what it is, astronomy, <laughs> whatever your business is. And so uh, a lot of times the, the inference comes from just a, a human in the loop saying, oh, I think the reason for this is. And so, you, so keep it the human in the loop, but, but make sure you collect those data and, and think about both the predictive and prescriptive aspects of the models you're building. What, what is, they can predict the future, but if you don't like that future, then you want to change it. And I want to just call out a second element that you mentioned there, which is organizations have to be willing to then experiment to test their assumptions. Exactly. So this example that you raised here was a very, a very simple algorithm. If they visit the website, then they might churn. But if we don't experiment and test that, then we will never know whether it's true or not. And we can't just also just throw everything at it until we've tested whether it's the the real thing or not, or if it's just a, a hunch. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't bring that up already, but thank you for bringing that up. Part of that data democratization is developing a culture of experimentation, not just a culture of data democratization, but a culture of testing to see what works, right? That's, that's sort of traditional A-B testing, which, they, which marketing has done for years, right? You, you know, even clinical trials met for drugs, it, they do A-B testing, right? They have the control group and they have the test group, right? So, so, so basically, I think of AI as just a, a clinical data science, but applied to everything, not just, not just healthcare. All right. So it's, 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 it's a culture of experimentation to test what works. And I love there's this one company, it's actually, it's actually a casino in Las Vegas. Uh, they actually wrote an article about this. They, their culture, the way they, so I told you about this other company where the, the CEO said, you know, we have no more front office, back office. That was his tagline. At this casino, their tagline is, to the, to the employees, they say, test or be fired. <laughs> that is, find out what the customers want. So when, if you ever go to a casino, I mean, it's just all kinds of stuff happening, right? So the, the service people in the, in the casino, they're, they're bringing you uh, drinks. Maybe they're giving you discounts on particular, the food court, the restaurant, you know, maybe some game chips for games you like test, see what that customer wants, what they like, 
what keeps them there, keeps them engaged at the business. So I like that expression, test or be fired. I mean, it's like, get with the program here, <laughs> do some experiments and see what your customers really want and what they like before they walk away and go to someplace else. <laughs> yeah, depending on how you in, interpret that sentence, it can either be a very freeing to say, to understand that you are allowed to experiment in your day-to-day, or it can be very scary. That uh, Yeah. I like yeah. I like it though. I like it though. <laughs> a, a kick out the door is uh, waiting around the corner. Yeah, I, I don't mind it either. Well, fear is a and great I, motivator in, in many, <laughs> hopefully in a positive way. <laughs> yes, and I think uh, casinos are such big machines with such thin margins. So you've got billions flowing through, and they take a cut of uh, I don't know what it is. Let's call it one percent for the sake of argument. So if you can make that one percent. 1.1%, then you've increased your profit by yeah by 10% all of a sudden. So yeah, that's uh, it really does matter for an industry like that. That's remarkable. Yeah, it is pretty significant those margins. That's what people ought to think about. It's like the mar- the marginal improvement can be pretty significant even for a very simple approach. Yeah, and and experimentation is such a key to organizations getting better at this stuff because you can actually measure now. So when I say now, as opposed to go back 40 years in time, we could experiment, but you would potentially only pick up anecdotally what would happen. But but now there's so many steps in a, a customer journey that is uh, creating a digital record that you can actually measure often, finally, what uh, is happening in each, at each step. So you really do have the tools to hand to do this stuff now. You just got to create the culture exactly. and the, the willingness to do it. And I love experimentation as a scientist. <laughs> and again, feeds back to, to why I love what I'm doing. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason why people in data science, uh, including myself, uh, are all a bit nerdy. I think uh, we, <laughs> we get drawn to this experimental nature of it. Oh, but the fun thing is I've given a lot of public lectures and specifically for people who don't know any of this stuff. And I, I present it in a way that hopefully is engaging for a general audience. And uh, sure enough, I find all kinds of people just get all excited about this who have, they walk in the room and they say, I, you know, I, I've always hated math. I mean, I had students like this. They, they walk in my class and they say they hate math and science and suddenly they love math and science. Why? Because they, they can actually see something that they can naturally do. Again, they get it. I want to tap into what people are naturally good at. I mean, I mean, not only are we good at recognizing patterns as children, we also experiment, right? We test our parents, we test the food, we test the game toys, we put things in our mouth. <laughs> I mean, so we're natural scientists as children, curious, creative, experimenting, testing. I mean, it's just what we do. So I, I tell people, you may have lost this along the way in your education, but you are a natural born scientist. Yeah, I look at my one-year-old daughter at the moment and she's just experimenting with everything and everything's a, a wonder. And it's so nice to, to see through her eyes again, uh, again and live that again as, a, as an yeah, adult. Exactly. Uh, unfortunately, most, most of her experiments involve putting things in her mouth, which is not always a good idea. But, <laughs> well, but other than that, she's learning fast, so, so that's good. Well, guess what? Every child ever lived <laughs> has done this, and most, and most of them have lived through childhood. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I suppose it's... Uh, it's a way of uh, it's a way of filtering. Uh, well, it's a way of learning. I mean, it's handle uh, things. Yeah. I, I always use that analogy also to explain machine learning. Machine learning is about learning from experience, right? I, I mean, that's the first definition I ever read of machine learning twenty four years ago. It, and I read it, I didn't understand it, but now I fully understand it. They, the, the book said machine learning 
is the set of mathematical algorithms that learn from experience. And that was the definition. I said, wait a minute. It's got to be more to, I mean, there's this big, fat, thick machine learning book that I picked up. This is in 1997, I think, by Tom Mitchell, fabulous book, classic machine learning textbook for computer scientists for decades. And it's def- that was it. The definition of machine learning is the set of algorithms that learn from experience. Period. That's it. And so what it is, is again, the, the experience basically means the feedback loop. I mean, it's going back to your false positive and false negative example, the false, the false alerts, the false alarms. You feed that back in to improve the model. It's that feedback, just like a child gets the feedback. Oh, this doesn't taste good. Or if I touch the hot stove, I'm going to burn my finger. I better not do that again. Okay. <laughs> or if I stand on the top of the stairs and fall down, oh, I better not do that again. <laughs> okay. So, so there's all kinds of things you learn from experience. And, and so I said, machine learning is a lot like raising teenagers and you'll, you'll get there. I've already gone through that. Is that good experience? I mean, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So you got to build bad machine learning. I always tell people, I always tell data scientists in an interview, I said, I want to hear about your wrong models, the bad models, because in order to get something right in machine learning, you have to build at least two wrong models first. Because if it's wrong, because if you build one, you don't know how good it is. So you, so you tweak the model, you change the model, then you build another one. And then it's different. So if it's different in the good way, you, keep, you don't just stop. You say, well, it's getting better. Maybe it'll continue to get better. So if it's worse, <laughs> then you better turn around and go the other way. All right. So it's all about finding that, that, that minimal error curve, the minimum point in the error curve. Right. And you don't find that by just building one model. You don't find it by building two models. Two models just tell you the direction you need to go in this way or that way to keep looking for the optimal point. And so that means you're, 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 it's that bad model that gives you the insight to build the good model. Okay, so good, ex- okay, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment, that you learn from the mistake. And that's the, other, that's the other sort of cultural thing we didn't talk about is that fail fast to learn fast mentality. And I think that's another critical thing is that you gotta give people freedom to do the testing and have some of it fail because you're going to learn from those failures. And that's, that's always a critically important thing in any kind of business, not just data science. Yeah. And the goal is not to fail. The goal is to avoid fail, but when it avoid failing, but when it happens, we, we are okay. And we learn from it. It's important. Exactly. The goal is not to look to fail. Right. It's it's, I always tell people it's like the difference between tactical failure and strategic failure. Right. So strategic failure is if you lose the war, <laughs> but tactical failure means we need to lose this battle in order to win the war, right? We need to, we need to like lose this hill to win the battle. Okay. So, so you need to know when the tactical failures will lead to the, the bigger success. All right. So, so I, I like watching sporting events and sometimes you see coaches make those kind of decisions say, why are they doing that? Then all of a sudden you realize that they put themselves at a momentary disadvantage in order to, bi- to build up a bigger advantage strategically. And so that, so that sort of concept should apply to these data science and AI implementations and businesses that sometimes we're going to build some things that are, that are going to fail, but our goal is not to fail. As you say, <laughs> the goal is to learn from the failure to in order to get it better. And so the, the best quote on that I've ever heard was from Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, right? He said, but he, someone criticized him once because he, 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 he had a thousand variants before he got it right. <laughs> All right. And he said, hey, you failed a thousand times to, to get the light bulb correct. 
He said, no, I didn't fail a thousand times. I learned a thousand ways not to build the light bulb. Yeah, great way to put it. It was all about the learning experience. And that's, to me, one thing that, again, a characteristic of data science, but also should be a characteristic of every human being is that lifelong learning. Always be in learning mode. Always be willing to learn, especially learn from mistakes, but just learn new things and to be in that, being in that particular way of thinking about the world helps you to navigate this AI emerging digital technology world we live in now where it's kind of scary for people who maybe don't feel comfortable, especially if they're a certain age where all this stuff has happened to them since they entered the workforce, maybe 20 plus years ago. And they feel like, how do I fit into all this emerging technology, this digital stuff, this AI stuff, you know, but if you're always in learning mode, at least you can, you can actually be striving to learning what it is about it that where you can fit in. And it, and again, it's not about learning the math and the coding. I mean, that's for certain groups of people, but it's learning about how to bring value to what you already know about your, your domain, about your business. Cause you, that human domain knowledge is still the, one of the most critical pieces to getting it right. Yeah. I'd say to the non-data science listeners out there or non-data scientist listeners out there, your data science team is wanting you to come with all your ideas and for, for them to work with you to test them. So uh, whether you know how to code up a model or not, you can definitely help the emergence of AI and data science and uh, be involved in it, e- even if you don't uh, actually build the algorithms. Now, Kirk, for, for listeners who would like to keep learning and to stay ahead of the curve with all this, um, what do you think are the most promising future applications of AI that are, are yet to be implemented at scale? Well, I think this behavior analytics that I mentioned is just, be- just starting. But there's so many dimensions of understanding how people behave and what, and not just people, but processes, products, things. We talk about the Internet of Things, right? There's data being collected about everything, every process, every every product in the world, and, and understanding how it's moving, why it's moving, how it changes, why it changes. How can we optimize it? How can we produce a better outcome from it? And this applies remarkably to a lot of things that are very big on people's minds nowadays, like sustainability, climate change. How can we nudge things and move things to a better outcome? And so understanding sort of the behaviors of things, and and again, it's not just people, it's behaviors of anything, (laughs) through data and then inferring what it is about that thing, uh, how how it's behaving, that we not only can build a predictive model, but we also can build a causal model that is, I, I know now if I do this, I can change to a better outcome. So I think behavior analytics sounds very simple. And, it's, and it was, oftentimes we, we defer to thinking it's just human behavior we're talking about, but it's a broader thing. It is the ultimate pinnacle success of AI and analytics in our businesses and that it gives us the right decision at the right time in the right context. And so I think that's really uh, how AI is going to be able to, to sift through massive mountains of data uh, of people, processes, and things uh, to, to help get that right in m- many, many different applications. So last couple of questions before we finish up. So the first question is what we call paid forward here on Leaders of Analytics. So the question is, who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Well, I guess for right now, today, I would recommend Kate Strachney, if you haven't had her yet. So she's been leading the dedicated conference series, hard enough to run a conference once a year or once every two years. I used to do that years ago and ask 
she runs a co- dedicated conference like three times a year or four. I don't have lost track now, but she's a rising star in the field, uh, doing a lot of great f- things for the community, you know, working with sponsors, you know, building up a lot of sponsorships that support our community. It'd be great to get her on there and talk about the, the things she's doing and just the inspiration she is for a lot of people because she's really uh, built up quite a following and, uh, and achieved quite a bit. And I think that would be a great person for you to have on. Kate is great. And I agree with you that she would be a wonderful guest on here. So I'll see if I can make that happen. Now, last question, Kirk, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of all the content that you produce? Where do I start? So I'm very, I'm very active on Twitter. So Kirk D. Born. D doesn't stand for data, stands for Daniel. Kirk D. Born at, at Kirk D. Born. So very active on Twitter. Find me on LinkedIn. If you just search for my name on the internet, you'll find a million things there. But I have a blog site called rocketdatascience.org. It's not about rockets. <laughs> it's just a shout out to my NASA days. So I have a lot of blog articles there, but I also have a lot of articles that are sponsored articles. And so there are a lot of different company websites. So, so, I, so on my Rocket Data Science, I have links to articles that I've written elsewhere. So you can look at Rocket Data Science. Uh, check out my uh, data leadership group. AI shows the types of uh, content and services people are interested in, things that I do. So I have videos, clips of some talks I've given if you're just interested in that. So mentoring and training opportunities. I, it's just a lot of things out there. My, the way my wife answers the question, people say, what does your husband do? She said, I have no idea he does so many things, but just search for his name on the internet. <laughs> and you'll, she said, then you'll understand my confusion. There's just so much stuff. <laughs> so, that's good. Yeah. As long as he's out of the house, most of the time I'm heavy. Is that what she says? <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, it's uh, uh, like I said, I'm semi-retired, so I'm working twice as hard. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's, it's an inverse of. Uh, um, <laughs> Craig Bourne, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. And I also appreciate all the wonderful stuff you do for the data science community on a global scale. I know you have hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, for example, which is just a testament to what you've brought to the community. Now, for listeners, if you are interested in the book that was mentioned earlier, Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, you can go to leadersofanalytics.com slash AI, and there's a page on that book there and where, where to find it. Kirk, thank you so much, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Jonas. It was great to be here. 